So we're, this is our second Sunday share version of an evening service, and a, a good special warning should be placed right here, because as we go through the Old Testament, we're looking at three things about each book, and we're at Song of Solomon, so it's good that it's second Sunday share. Most of our young people are somewhere else, because you have to be 21 to listen to this lesson tonight. Oops. That's okay. I'm, I'm, I think we're okay with the Dickey family back there. We'll start off safe enough. The, 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 the title of this book is really Song of Songs. Uh, it's a superlative way of saying the best of songs there is, Song of Songs. But when King James came out in 1611, they just insisted on Song of Solomon. And so it's kind of stuck, and that's what people like to call it now. Um, but that's relatively new. That's all post-1611. Before that, it was Song of Songs for everybody. It's an odd book in the Bible. It's never cited in the New Testament. God's name is never mentioned anywhere in it. Can anybody recall another Old Testament book that doesn't have God's name in it at all? Esther. Yes, very good. Okay. It mentions 15 species of animals and 21 varieties of plants. Why would it do that? I don't know. Uh, but I guess if you're going to be focused on kind of the birds and the bees, you might as well go ahead and get the plants and the trees. Okay. Most awkward moment of my life that involves Song of Solomon was a moment Terry Smith and I shared at Manila, Arkansas. You remember this? It was a, a funeral, I think, for Bill Berry's sister. And it was a Methodist service, and the Methodist preacher comes out a very formal guy. Very, he had the, everything on the whole, and he was very formal in his ceremony, and he started reading a song, a, a verse he said was appropriate. It was King James, and here's what it said. My beloved spake and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. It got to the voice of the turtle, and you have those moments when you're supposed to be calm, you're in church, but you cannot control how funny something sounds. The voice of the turtle, and I'm doing everything I can to be very calm. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Voice of the turtle. What exactly does that sound like? Right? Well, there's a video. And he's got it queued up. Is it here? Is it right here? In case you're wondering what the voice of a turtle is. This is what you get for Second Sunday Share you wouldn't normally get. That's it. There's your voice of a turtle. That's it. That's all there is. Now, there's another one that has the mating sounds of a turtle, but I didn't have the nerve to put that on the screen. Uh, and it goes two minutes, and I just don't want to do that. But it's, that's the voice of a turtle. And there's actually a movie. Here's a, anybody who this is? Ronald Reagan. In a movie back a long time ago, The Voice of the Turtle. Sure enough. I, crazy. And what you learn at funerals, right? Enough of that. Okay, so the real mystery is how are you supposed to understand this book of Song of Solomon? As you read through it, you're mercifully ignorant of Hebrew poetry, then it kind of it tames down what the story goes. Um, but some call it an allegory. The beloved um, is God, and the bride is Israel, and then becomes the church. 
So as you read this, we're supposed to spiritualize it allegorically. Some will argue this. Some will argue that it's mystical. This is not, this is about Christ, his devotion to the individual believer. This is how Christ feels about you. So that's why we have Song of Solomon in here. Some will argue it's a type. That's how they call it, typical. There is a love song back behind it, but it's, it's supposed to be by the believer, then metaphorically applied to Christ and his church. But most people now just admit what this is, is a love song between a man and a woman who are in a permanent relationship of marriage with each other. And this is almost like a script. It's a script. They're playing their part. If you read it in modern versions, it kind of breaks it down, or at least tries to, when the man is speaking, when the woman is speaking, what they're saying. It becomes this play that, that kind of highlights marital love and sex in marriage, but it kind of loses its pizzazz when you go like, uh, Solomon, which of your thousand women is this? Oh, you're the one for me. And so the next night, you're the one for me. And the next night, you're the one for me. And he does this a thousand times. It just kind of loses its kind of, right? Um, but it seems to me that the best way to take this book is to, it just teaches the sanctity of marriage, the holiness of marital sex as well. But it's a love song in a different era as the husband compares his wife's teeth to sheep. I've not tried that with Melissa. I just don't really feel like trying it. Uh, or a flock of goats from the mountain. Is, that's what her hair is like. Um, and the man described, uh, she describes the man from her point of view, chapter 4 and chapter 7. She has, like I said, the teeth of a flock of sheep. And she describes him as legs of alabaster. And it's just kind of got some stuff in it that today just kind of doesn't translate well. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. I'm not going to try that. I'm not trying that. Forget that. I don't care if it's the Word of God or not. But in doing this, the Bible is combating this view of sex in the ancient world that it was something of a religious rite. They could even include it in their worship services. It is not to be worshipped, and in our culture, it is. This is worshipped in our culture. It is considered the highest value. Sex is idolized all over the place. And it, it was even given a role in divination back then. But sex is not to be considered irreligious either. It's, it's not to be thrown out and said, this is dirty, this is nasty, this is not to be in, in God's people's mind. Because there's a whole book now in the Bible devoted to it. You've got to pay attention. So look for a memory verse. We give three verses in a memory verse all the time. But, and I've never memorized a verse from this, but I, I did search out one that seems right. But in the, in the pursuit of that, there's some famous phrases. Do you remember the song... Jesus Rose of Sharon. I don't understand. There's different plants that are just considered Rose of Sharon, several different kinds. Nobody really knows which this is called, but that beautiful song, it really is a beautiful song. But I, what is Rose of Sharon? Well, it comes from this. The Lily of the Valley, that's in the middle of one of our songs. That's in chapter 2 as well. There's another one. His banner over me is love. And there's a song about that as well. Um, a rose among thorns maybe that's where is it poison gets I, I don't know um, he is mine and I am his in chapter 6 verse 3 but 8 6 8 6 is a good memory verse and it's you may have before quoted somewhere set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm for love is as strong as death 
Jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Romantic, I think, but I know it's powerfully true between two people who love each other. Certainly better than this. Chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is like rounded goblet. I don't know. That never lacks blended wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. This is kind of like a celebration of the body of the other person, but it just uh, you've, you've got to find ways in our own culture to do that. It's all in there, though, and it's all communicating something. And so we have a job to do, and that is, what are the three things about Song of Solomon then? What do we find that's of value to our culture right now? And the first one is this. It's this line that's repeated three times. And I think that repetition is really important. Here it is. I adjure you, beg you, I admonish you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Chapter 2, verse 7. Do not mess with this until it's time. Tell me that's not a message our culture needs to hear. We sexualize girls way too soon. Put them in adult circumstances way too soon. Next time it says it. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. I'm going to tell you this once. I'm going to tell you this twice. And then... Next one. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is, a, this is talking about that sexual desire or passion or love that people have between each other and these feelings of affection for each other. And it's totally appropriate, but always to be respected and put in its proper place. Even legitimate sexual relationship can be dangerous because it's more powerful then people give it credit for. It is not just a biological urge. There is a spiritual counterpart to this that has to be respected and carefully navigated. This is calling for, here's what our culture needs to hear. There is restraint to be had in this. Now, what's funny is, when you read this three times, it's like it dares to say to us, There's things that you can do to control this. You think that's true? Our culture says that you can't. If if that attraction's in there, you can't do anything about it. It's just there. You gotta act on it. You gotta explore it. You gotta uh, you know experiment with it. And and what what she's saying is she's saying y'all don't mess with this. There's things you can do to not let yourself be aroused like this. There's things you can do to calm yourself. Take a cool shower, buddy. Right. There are things we can do, and that's a message that needs to be heard in our world. People are wanting to pursue adult things way too soon and don't have a context for honoring it. Even within marriage, this needs to be honored. And it's not just about the physical power, it's the spiritual power of this physical action. So, number one, I would use this book to urge people to practice restraint. There is self-control that can be practiced in this realm. You have control. Second one, 
The very existence of this book in the Bible means the church should talk about this. If we're going to be faithful to preaching the whole counsel of God, we can't ignore this. You cannot be faithful to the text and silent about sexuality. And we live in a world that seems to think they know it. And we've got, we capitalize on it, we have fun with it, and the church has to be quiet and prudish about it. There are boundaries to be honored. God has designed this. God created this in the first place. He's the one who put his stamp of approval on it, and he put it within the marriage context and said, it's good, it's great. And there's attraction to be had in marriage. And this particular book celebrates this attraction and tells the man and the woman how to capitalize on it and enjoy it all day long. There's a book that you can get called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. Because if you look at the world and its sex movies and its pornography, it's all about the one act. That's it. It's focused on the act. And this book tells us the entire life is to be the context for this. It begins in the kitchen. And it begins and it, you, you kind of flirt with each other all day long and you play around with each other and you're nice to each other. and you, you Yeah, foreplay's a thing. It's a thing. I told you you had to be 21. There's even a fight between the husband and the man and the woman in this book, and they figure out how to get past the conflict and get through it and to reunite together again. Do we need to talk about that in the church? Do we need to talk to people about how to handle this? How to have relationships where they respect each other and love one another put each other in a context and yeah you have some disagreements and conflicts but you can get past that that's all in here proverbs warns about this too but it's always the the danger of being drawn by illicit partners and, and that needs to be heard too but then song of solomon comes along and says but in the proper context this is wonderful play around with this increase the tension drive him crazy Wives, drive her crazy. Husbands, just be part of this. Celebrates it. Harness it all day long. So I'm just a little sick of the world telling me that they know how to maximize the joy and the pleasure of this. And the church sits back and goes, mm -hmm. So the third thing. You do have to apply this to how the church feel, for God feels about us. It's too obvious in Scripture, and this seems a little strange. I don't really, I don't, I won't really feel comfortable doing this, except for the fact God does it. So, in the Old Testament, you have the story of Hosea. Does anybody remember what Hosea is about? God says to this prophet, "Go marry a prostitute. Be faithful to her." But she's going to cheat on you, and she's going to have kids, and you're not going to, you're, they're not actually going to be yours. And then she's going to go out there, and she's going to cheat on you, and I want you to go back, and I want you to buy her back. Buy her back. And I want you to make her your wife again. And you're like, why are you making this guy do it? Here's why he's doing it. The closest comparison he can get on earth is husband and wife relationship where there's a covenant, and she keeps stepping out on him, stepping out on him, and says, Israel, this is you. I'm married to you, and you keep stepping out and stepping. And I feel just as strongly about your unfaithfulness to me as you do about a spouse who walks out on you. 
Try that on for size. Make sure you understand God feels this way about his people. Jeremiah is another one. Jeremiah uh, uses this unfaithfulness language. We're going to look at it. Here's a passage from it. This is chapter 3. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, good king of Judah, but God has already decided that he's going to wipe them out, Judah. Have you seen what she did, the faithless one Israel? Now, King Josiah is in Judah, the south. They're still good. Israel's already gone. And what's what he says? Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? Yeah, this is in Scripture. This is why we don't read Jeremiah. And I thought, after she's done all this, she'll return to me. But she didn't return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. The southern tribes saw this godless forsakenness of the covenant up there. And surely they're repulsed and will come to God and make sure it never happens down there, right? Well, she saw that for all the adulteries, that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Let me ask you this. Did God divorce the northern tribes? Did he divorce them? Sent them away with a certificate of divorce. God divorced the northern tribes for their unfaithfulness. That's the word he uses. They're gone, right? Yet her treacherous sister Judah to the south, she didn't learn from that. She didn't get scared by that. She too went, and she's playing the whore too. She's just following the way of her wild sister. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. For all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. There are places where it gets more graphic than I'm willing to read it. On every high, uh, every high hill, she spread her skirts. That's what God says. Does God feel about us as intensely as we feel about each other in a covenant relationship? The answer is yes. But God did divorce. And then, okay, that's all Old Testament, right? Well, is it? Listen to the New Testament. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. We're members of his body. A man will not leave his father and mother, or will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm talking about Christ in the church. Is he talking about marriage or Christ in the church? Yes. I don't know that you can separate them. And that's the point, isn't it? That's the very point. Jesus feels about us. We are the bride of Christ. So you got, Reve you got Revelation 21. 
very end, got heaven coming. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. We are the bride of Christ. So it's not all that outlandish to view the Song of Solomon as an accurate understanding of how God feels about us. God desires intimacy with his people that is as deep and compelling as marriage, including that sex act within it. In addition to this, we get an understanding of what God means by being jealous. He, call, he names himself jealous in Scripture longs to have our undivided attention just as we have his and 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 when we tease we tease with the world we flirt with the world it's an affront to him and some will argue like oprah who can't believe in the bible god because god would never be jealous it's out of place that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard do you think there shouldn't be some appropriate jealousy between a man and a wife and their time with each other and their concern for each other? Listen to James chapter 4. I've got one more. You adulterous people, notice the language. Adulterous, you're being unfaithful to a covenant. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred, enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have both. You can't call yourself a Christian in covenant with God and go out and philander with the world. You can't do that because it's adultery. That's the language he uses. Or do you think that it's for no purpose that Scripture says this? He yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us you know why he put his spirit within us it makes us his and then we take what's his and unite it with the world and all of a sudden he's jealous with rage should he be should he just go well i don't really care anyway just go out there should he be of course he should if he really loves I'd compare this to that, the way people make fun of King James sometimes. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and everybody like, why'd you put it that way? Well, it wasn't because King James is ignorant. It might be because we are, because that is the word that he uses. When the prophet says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge in Hosea 4.6, he wasn't saying my people can't stay the Ten Commandments. He wasn't saying that my people can't pass a Bible test. He was saying my people don't want to be close to me. They don't want to be close. And I want to be close. You serve a God who wants to be close. Close enough to call it like a marriage relationship. Like Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. There was nothing between them. They were completely naked. Nothing between them. Completely trans. Parent. So can we view God that way? Is your view of God one that he wants to be so close? He wants to be intimate with you in your life, to share everything. That's a little bit scary. But it's only scary because of sin. Because when sin came in, what did Adam and Eve then do? They hid. 
terrified. Well, just a moment ago, I mean, Bible time, just a moment ago, they were naked and unashamed. They were walking with God, gave no thought to anything, sharing everything with God, and then sin comes in, and now they're in hiding and clothing themselves. Well, God did a lot to get rid of the sin so that the closeness could be restored, didn't he? He said, I can't stand the distance. I want to be close. And he asks his son to give up the glories of heaven, come down here, and die so that he could be close again, so that we could be close with him. And if we clothe ourselves with Christ, sin is gone, and that intimacy is restored, and there's no reason for us to be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God wants to be close. Do you? Because if you're not close with Him, the only fault that is, is yours. He's done everything He can do. And I think that's the message of Song of Solomon. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful you love us and that you long for us to have and want and desire and cultivate and a closeness with you. And everything that prevented that, you took care of through Jesus. You long for us. You love us. You want to be intimate with us. Help us not to be afraid of that. Help us not to allow obstacles to prevent that, but to allow you close and live in such a way that that closeness can be maintained and sustained all our lives until that day when Jesus comes and gets his bride. And we're ready for that day when you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.